Our original idea to set up the first small women organization was very simple. We wanted to use our own experience to help other women adjust to life in America, and we wanted to create a space where women and girls can make their own decision. We anticipated a big learning curve and lots of obstacles, but were surprised by the strong backlash from the men in our community. This pushback intensified as domestic violence, lack of employment, and mental health escalated. We were ridiculed, coerced, manipulated in the name of cultural preservation and unity. I must say that the cliche is true that what didn't break you made you stronger. It was this predicament that bound us and made us more determined than ever to succeed. Welcome to another episode of the Mini Asian Stories podcast, where we uplift diverse stories and voices from our Asian Minnesotan community. I'm your host, Julia Gay. This season, we're talking with organizers and leaders in our community to uncover stories, histories, and lessons from Asian Minnesotan movement history and explore how these historical fights have helped pave the way for the work that we are doing today. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gao Li Ya, the former executive director of the Women's Association of Hmong and Lao. Listen in as Gao Li reflects on founding the first Hmong women's organization in Minnesota and the challenges that they faced along the way. My name is Gao Li Ya, uh, and my, my uh, last name is actually Va, but uh, Ya is my husband's name, so... Uh, in the Hmong culture, uh, when we get married, we often will take on our husband's name. So I'm now known as, you know, Angauli Ya. So uh, I am Hmong, and I grew up in Laos, uh, a war-torn country in Southeast Asia. And um, I consider myself one of the few fortunate Hmong girls who had the opportunity to obtain a formal education during the war. Uh, while my parents live in the war zone areas, all my siblings were sent to school in the capital city of Yanqian. Uh, and uh, I and my two sisters went to a Hmong Catholic boarding school for girls since I was seven years old. And I grew up with four major languages, Hmong, Lao, French, and Thai. And I acquired my fifth language, which is English, uh, when I came to this country. I also uh, grew up with three different religions, uh, Hmong shamanism, Christianity, and Buddhism. Uh, my father was a shaman, uh, but I went to a Catholic school, and I was living with my uncle uh, as a young adult, uh, and he practiced Buddhism, so I grew up with three different religions uh, as well. Uh, and I, I believe that I have been enriched by all the various experiences uh, growing up. And I've learned to be an independent thinker and live my life based on what the society and environment had to offer. In other words, um, I'm a survivor. But, you know, when I came to this country, I, I was 19 years old and I had a baby, one year old. But uh, my English was very limited. So... Um, 
uh, it was very difficult for any one of us to find job because in order to get to job, you have to have transportation. So the lack of transportation, limited English proficiency and all of that you know, was a big barrier for us getting a job. So uh, a lady from our church took pity on me and hired me to clean her house twice a month. And uh, I cried the first time I got, you know, I got some money so that I can buy my uh, daughter some plastic pans for her, you know. <laughs> and because I, I really thought that there are so many jobs available in this country when we were, were coming over. And I thought that it's just a matter of you willing to go out there and uh, accept a job that you will get a job. But we were here for one whole year and we didn't have any job offer. We couldn't find job. We couldn't get to a job. The janitor at the, the church that sponsored us retired. So the, the church offered us, our family of six adults, to clean the church. And that's how we earn money to help pay for the rent. And back in those days, we can also use cash to buy uh, what they call food stamps. So Let's say that, you know, um, you, you may spend $100, but based on your family, number of in your family, uh, you may get like four or $500 of worth of food stamp to buy food. And that is how we were uh, living our first few years. When I shared with Cal's executive and network director, Taomei Shang, that we were going to do a podcast this season that was really exploring our histories of, of organizing and activism in the Asian Minnesotan community. Taomei was like, we have to highlight Hmong women organizing and the incredible work that Hmong women have been doing in the community for decades now, building the foundation for the work that Cal is doing today. I was really excited that she shared with me more information about the Women's Association of Hmong and Lao, and then connected me with Gao Li, who is here today and was also the former executive director and one of the founders of the organization. Gao Li, could you share a little bit more about the Women's Association of Hmong and Lao? Uh, when, it, when it started, what inspired the founding of the organization and how, what did it mean to you personally to be involved in the work? After many more Hmong refugees began uh, resettling in St. Paul, I moved here to, you know, moved to St. Paul, and I was hired as an interpreter. And so four or five other women who were hired either as interpreter for uh, clinics and hospitals or schools, that we got together and we talked about issues that we, you know, witnessed or helping families. And we realized that the women were struggling and uh, yet there was no uh, assistance or help of any sort for them. And so we decided that we wanted to do something to help uh, other women so they don't have to struggle so that we could, could share our own experience in, in helping them. So uh, we got together and um, again, we believed that it was from a good place, right? We want to do something good for our community. But not long after we started pulling the group together, uh, we got a lot of backlash from the community because they felt that we are trying to destroy our cultural value by helping women to seek uh, equal opportunity, uh, equality, and uh, so, so on and so forth. Our original idea was just very simple. We wanted to use our own experience to help other women 
adjust to life in America, and we wanted to create a space where women and girls can make their own decisions. We did not know anything about how to run an organization or anything like that, but we were surprised by that backlash from our own community. This pushback from our community intensified as domestic violence, lack of employment, mental health, and truancies and things like that, that escalated. Um, so we were ridiculed, coerced, and manipulated in the name of cultural preservation and unity. I have to say that the, the cliche is true that what didn't break us made us stronger. This predicament kind of bound us and made us more determined than ever to succeed. It's called uh, the Women Association of Hmong and Lao, but we just shorted uh, uh, it to be WAW. It became a reality in 1979. So I came, I came here in 1976, and uh, in 79, we started putting the organization together, and it was run by volunteers until 1981, uh, when we finally secured some you know, sufficient funding to hire staff. And I became uh, Wall's first executive director. And again, as if, you know, adding insult to injury, <laughs> our very first service was a domestic violence prevention program. When we uh, put out the program, uh, we were actually threatened and accused of destroying the Hmong culture. And uh, uh, men accused us of kidnapping their wives and children when we placed the women in shelters to keep them from harm. Community leaders accused us of being disrespectful and taking over their role when we tried to arrange for family mediation and consultations or some even left us threatening phone messages. What's so significant about the organization is that we feel strongly that we need to create a place where women can have a voice especially on issues that impact their life. If you come from a culture that is a patriarchy system, you understand how significant that is for a woman to actually have a voice and make the decision uh, about their own life and their own future. We, when we help uh, raise women's status, we are actually helping her whole family and also her whole community. We can't just stop, we can't abandon the idea because the community did not support us. We had to continue to move forward. We strongly felt that whatever it is we were doing at the time, it was from a good place. And we truly believe that things that are with a good you know, intention will eventually yield good outcome, but it will take time and there will be many hurdles for us to overcome. But if we are persistent, that we will get there. I'm really incredibly amazed by your courage in doing this work at quite, like quite a young age at that time. You were in your early 20s, right? And yeah. mm -hmm. you were, you had a little kid, a little baby, and, <laughs> and then you were gathering community and women and, and providing the most urgent care. That really resonates with me in that obviously we want to dream big, but you were just seeing this urgent need to fill for women, like get them into safety, make sure that they're taken care of. So um, that's incredible. I'm curious how you really overcame a lot of the community pushback or how did you organize among women when there is this very structured systemic patriarchy that you were fighting and fighting against and working around? 
actions speak volume. And so we were determined that we are going to make sure that we could show to the community that all the things that we are doing, it is for the good of the community. Domestic violence is very, very difficult issue to tackle, but it was a very pressing issue at the time. Just imagine families are put into a case where there's no there's no employment. And, and of course, there are a lot of pressure on people to get jobs and to learn English and to do all kinds of things. So there are a lot of problems in the family. And so the women are often taken out on and uh, and and plus we came from a culture where basically women are considered a second citizen. Basically, you should be seen but not heard kind of thing. One of our strategy was that we also look at some other issues that we could help uh, solve in the community. So women and children and the elderly are left behind, basically. By uh, knocking on doors at community, we talked to some of the elderly who were so depressed and isolated and homebound. And they were all asking and begging for someone to help get them together so that they can at least meet and get to meet and talk to other people and uh, who look like them, right? As you know, I mean, there are senior centers and things like that for seniors in this country, but it was not uh, accessible to our elders. One of our uh, programs to kind of balance the other more um, controversial uh, service is to help with the elderly. We reach both elderly men and women who uh, are so eager to come together and to learn some basic English. We got some volunteers, English speaking um, volunteers who are willing to come out and teach and we secure space at community centers, provided classes for elders who wanted to learn English or just want to get together and socialize. The elderly kind of help, I would say, balance out uh, some of the issues that we were facing in the community. Uh, the other thing is that to continue to provide some kind of uh, support group for uh, women who uh, face domestic violence, uh, instead of calling it support group, we call it crochet, uh, <laughs> crochet class or uh, sewing class or knitting class and things like that, you know, and we provide supplies, but people could come and just talk, right, about whatever it is that they want and if they want personal uh, privacy time with the staff, they could do that. Sometimes when, when we have to really seriously take the issue and we ended up having to call uh, the police to get involved and we call the shelters and the women's advocate will come and will actually intervene and will remove the women and the children from the home. Time like that, things get pretty uh, intense. The husbands and also some community leaders were upset with our organization for doing that because they felt like that is not our place. Uh, besides, in the small culture, you probably heard that there's a bride price, right? And so people felt that, well, they already purchased their wife, therefore the man actually owned the, the wife and therefore she has no say in how she's been, she was being treated. Um, uh, how she should live her life, right? Uh, and that is what we have to let the community know that in this country, this is no longer the tolerate and any violence will then be handled by the police department. But definitely our staff are facing the, those kinds of threats. 
and they have to be very careful uh, what they do and what they say out there in the community. When they go out and help family, they also have to be very careful and they always have to make sure that they are accompanied by someone from the police department or from the women's advocate. Um, and it, it was no easy. It was not e uh, an easy task to do, but we felt that we were doing what we needed to do. And the other thing is that sometimes after um, a woman has been out into a shelter and then when she came back from, from the shelter and she decided that she wanted to get back with her uh, husband, she would accuse us of manipulating her. And so it was very disheartening, but as a women organization, we just have to understand that that's where she is in her life. Although we wish that she would do things differently, but that's where she is at. And out of respect, we have to respect whatever it is. We are a, an organization, we are there to help people if they need us. And when they don't no longer need us, then that is fine. But we always uh, make sure that these women understand that our door is always open if they ever need help. So there's no an easy solution. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The the significance of having an open door that people in the community know is there for them when they need it mm -hmm. is so powerful. And you were providing a service that was community-based by Hmong women for Hmong women in Hmong, right? Yeah. Um, so I think language access is so important when we're talking about issues of domestic violence and, and how to really serve communities who are most in need yeah. and, and most vulnerable. I'm curious now how you're seeing us as a community continue to benefit from that work that you were doing back then. So now, that was in the 70s, like late 70s, early 80s. How do you see us still benefiting from that organizing? The Hmong community um, is still benefiting from this you know, movement that we started 40 plus years ago. Although the organization that we created has ceased to exist, but I would say that over the 20 years of its existence, WAL has created leadership opportunities for many Hmong women uh, who presently hold very prestigious positions in the community and continue to be strong, strong advocates in the Asian community. We provided opportunity for women to be executive directors, presidents, board members, and this was during a time when women would not be even considered for such position uh, with our organization in, in our community. This movement actually inspired more women uh, in Minnesota as well as in other states to uh, step up and seek to greater opportunities for themselves. I remember being invited to um, Chicago and Wisconsin to talk to uh, more women's group about how to form a more women organization. And some of the questions that I got from some of these uh, sessions were, how do you get men to support your organization? And I, I often said, you don't, you know, you don't. But again, your actions, uh, I would say your actions speak louder than words. So if you want to do something good for the community, you do it. Don't just talk about it, just actually do it. Uh, we'll see what your, your true intentions are. If there's a will, there is a way of doing this. 
but it's not an easy task to do. You have to be willing to live with the consequence. You may be outcasted, you may be ridiculed, and you may face all kinds of accusations. Uh, and so those are the kinds of things that you have to be willing to you know, accept and face. Otherwise, it's better for you to just take care of your family and do nothing, right? One of the hardest things for me was that in those early days, um, some community leaders in, in my community uh, even called my father-in-law. Uh, and because he used to be a village leader back in Laos, and he was sought after by relatives and villagers to settle domestic disputes and things like that. So they call him and they ask him to help stop me from organizing the women group, right? So he did lecture me about Hmong cultural value and the complexity of marriage, a funeral, and the importance of our patriarchal system to preserve and pass on you know, culture to the next generation and things like that. And we did have a lengthy discussion about how our cultural practice needs to change in order for us to compete successful in the new world. He's a fair man and he's just, uh, and that is why he was sought after back in Laos. At the end, uh, he acknowledged that he could not stop me or other women, uh, but he, his advice was to be careful because many people feel threatened by what the women are doing. What I really take away from is that people can be reasonable, if they are willing to listen. Again, uh, him being a community leader himself, and he used to take on this role, and he's willing to listen, and he's a wise person. So any wise person who's willing to listen will understand uh, that we need to change, and we cannot remain the same. That actually leads really nicely into my next question. I'm curious if you could reflect a little bit on how the landscape of Hmong women organizing has evolved in Minnesota since your time working with Hua? I believe the landscape has changed tremendously since my time, you know, uh, with the, uh, uh, with the organization, uh, organizing of the women association. We've had so many successful Hmong women uh, working in so many fields now and are leaders at many institutions now. Uh, some well-known Hmong women like Tayang Yang and Botao Yorage, Michael Hang, Sophia Wu, uh, Chia Juyi, and to name a few. And all these ladies all have taken part in the Women Organization of Hmong and Lao at the beginning of their career. And these ladies have, have more than earned their place as leaders. But sadly, though, there's still hesitancy to recognize them as leaders within our own community. As women, I would say we have to continue to earn our place uh, as long as society doesn't think we deserve it. But then we have many, many younger women now who are emerging uh, leaders and they are doing well uh, in, in, in many workplaces uh, as well as businesses. In fact, what I'm observing is that we now have more uh, successful and well-educated more women than men. <laughs> and um, that what I, I'm just happy to see that. And, and again, it's just my personal observation. I don't have any statistics to support that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yes, 
uh, Hmong women are a force to be reckoned with, no doubt. <laughs> and we can owe the existence to the Coalition of Asian American Leaders to great Hmong women leaders as well, like like you mentioned, Botawa Rabe, Kaying Yang, <laughs> just to name a few. Our current executive and network director, Taomei Zhang, as well. This work, as you said, is just, it can be very discouraging and disheartening. It can be exhausting, especially when you're working so closely with your own community. And so I'm curious, how have you sustained yourself over all of these years of organizing and doing this work for your community? I, I guess because I was naive enough to uh, have hope for our community, that I also think about the fact that if I endure this hardship and make sure that something happened, that means that my daughters and my granddaughters will not have to do this. Some of this would already been passed. I look at this as something that I'm, I'm creating and uh, that will have a long lasting impact on in my community. And that's, that's the hope that keep me going. That's, that's beautiful. I don't, I think hope is so necessary right now. And it's really beautiful to hear that spring has just arrived here. And it, it reminds me that <laughs> there is hope. Yeah. Um, yes, but I, I'm curious now, like, what is your hope for the future? Uh, my hope is that uh, we, that means, you know, especially us women, that we continue to grow and support one another uh, to take full advantage of the opportunities around us. And if we succeed, we must remember to give back and help others. I think it's important for us to remember that if one of us fail, that we as a community have failed. That everybody will think about the future as more for the next generation, but not necessarily just for oneself. Because I can do so much for myself, fulfill my own needs, my personal goals. But if I have not done anything to help make the future better for the next generation, then perhaps I have not succeeded in you know, what I'm here to do. If I can hope, I, I believe that other people can too, and that if we all hope for a better future for our children and their children and the next generation, that things can be better. Gowley's community engagement and advocacy work at the Women's Association of Hmong and Lao helped shape her long and successful career and has strengthened her conviction to continue working towards progress for the Hmong community and the Asian Minnesotan community at large. Gowley and her family were the third Hmong family to resettle in Minnesota in 1976. And you can find a copy of the original newspaper clipping and Gowley's family photo announcing their arrival in the Twin Cities on our website at www.calmn.org podcast. Coming up next on the Mini Asian Stories podcast, season two, we'll be exploring queer organizing and adoptee organizing within the Asian Minnesotan community. If you've been a part of these movements and organizing, we'd love to hear what participating in these movements have meant to you. You can leave us a voice message at anchor FM slash mini Asian stories. The mini Asian stories podcast is co-produced by the coalition of Asian American leaders, 
The Uptake, and WFNU Frogtown Community Radio. Special thanks to Katie DeSell, our editor, and to Vin Liu for the theme music. Once again, I'm your host, Julia Gay, and this is the Mini Asian Stories podcast. Next week on the Mini Asian Stories podcast. Shades of Yellow started off as an informal group started by a couple of gay Hmong men. It was really created as a space to build community, uh, especially at a time where Hmong LGBTQ people were greatly invisible and very much like our existence was denied because of multiple factors like being both Hmong and becoming American were things that were clashing.